This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Hello and welcome back. Last episode, we were enlightened by Dr. Kuchadkar about new research and protocols in the pediatric world to avoid the damage of sedation and immobility in children. So what does this look like at the bedside? How does this change come about? Who is actually keeping kids awake and playing on the ventilator? Hannah Child from the UK shares with us her team's evolution and successes. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, of course I can. So my name is Hannah Child. I am from the UK. So I'm a critical care physiotherapist. So I trained in Birmingham in the UK, and I actually now work at Birmingham Children's Hospital, again, based in Birmingham, surprise, surprise. And I've been there since 2010, but I've kind of specialized within critical care since 2012. So my specialty is intensive care, specifically cardiacs, but we also do lots of other um, things within our unit. So we're one of the sort of largest single units in the UK. So we've got 31 beds and we take things like major trauma. Um, Cardiacs is one of our our big caseloads. We do liver surgery and lots of surgical and other medical patients. So really mixed, big unit. So in the UK, physiotherapy works slightly differently. So in the US, you've got physical therapists and then you've got your respiratory therapists. As in the UK, we kind of do both jo- jobs really. So I, my specialty is respiratory physio, but I also do all the rehab components to that as well. So we kind of do both roles. So that's a slightly different situation we have in the UK. So that's kind of how it's slightly different. So we kind of do the sort of role of a respiratory therapist, not in its complete entirety, but all the chest physio related to that we would do as well. Which I think is really beneficial as well, because physical therapy helps the lungs so much. But I think Absolutely. from the nursing side, I think it took me a while to understand that myself, but that's just ingrained in your practice. And so as a physiotherapist, what sparked your interest in early mobility and what do you see the benefits of it or what benefits do you see from it yeah so I mean I kind of got my role my specialty role in 2012 and I think after kind of settling in after about a year or so we kind of I noticed that we were having lots of children that were staying for a long period of time on ITU and actually were having significant deficits from being on ITU for that length of time so some of it physically, but some of it cognitively um, or emotionally, and not just the patients themselves, their parents were also having kind of long lasting kind of negative, I suppose, experiences of being on PICU. So I kind of looked at what we were doing from a therapy point of view and what we could potentially do to change it. 
what we were doing is certain patients were getting a lot of input, but not all patients were, and we weren't necessarily putting the input early enough. So we were almost allowing the problems to happen and then dealing with them rather than trying to prevent them happening in the first place. So I kind of started looking around and sort of seeing, well, in adult practice, I know that they did lots of early rehab and that's kind of sort of mainstay within adult practice, but in pediatrics, it's not really something that's been explored that much or hadn't been up to now. So I kind of started to look and see what other places are doing around the world really, but which is when I kind of met Satna really, and I was lucky enough to kind of explore the ideas of what she was doing and trying to sell it to our team. So luckily we've got, a, I've got a really good working relationship with our consultants and our on our unit. And I kind of sort of started to sell the idea of early rehab and the benefits that would, our patients would gain from it. So it was a big cultural change, big idea change. And it started with them kind of thinking, we're not against it, but we want to know more. So but mainly because the evidence to support it isn't there, like in adult practice. So we haven't got the randomized control trials to kind of say that it has these outcomes and if you do this, it works. And um, we haven't got that evidence yet in pediatrics. So it's a bit more of a hard sell. But I was kind of like keen to know more. And I was lucky enough to go to the John Hopkins Critical Care Rehab Conference in Baltimore. So I went in 2017, met Satna, kind of learned about everything they were doing over there, and then kind of came back with this burning desire to like do it in our unit and kind of brought all that enthusiasm back to the UK and that's when we started a big working group which I project led but a whole MDT group so we have medics consultants so that's an attending research team with the lead nurse of the unit in the team nurses occupational therapists our family liaison team which is a bit like your child life therapists speech and language therapist so basically huge team of people which we kind of met and then our early rehab program was born from there so ours is called move forward and that's kind of where we started from really and what we kind of did with that or I suppose what the aims of what we wanted to achieve is to try and include all patients on our unit so making sure that all children were considered regardless of age and ability and that it was considered as early as possible. So that was our kind of main aim to try and see if we could offset the, the physical and the emotional and cognitive problems that we found our children developing. Wow. So you as a <laughs> therapist grabbed the reins and said, we're turning this around. You should and, do it. Absolutely. And everyone eventually jumped on board. And yeah. So, I mean, yeah, our unit's amazing. So yeah, everyone was kind of like, we're not saying no, we're just saying we want to know more. So we went and found more. I mean, luckily, one of our consultants, Barney Schofield, I think you might talk to in due course, he, he's also kind of started to become really interested in early rehab. And he's now set up a research study in the UK, which is soon to, well, certain parts of it have already gone live, but the whole implementing implementation phase is soon to start so that is kind of hopefully going to get some of that evidence that we're lacking within pediatrics so he's a key player as part of our program too wow and even without the published evidence what changes have you seen in the outcomes of your patients yeah so it's been a completely like mixed i suppose mixed lots of different things we've seen so obviously the obvious things is that the fact our patients are now out of bed more than they've ever been before. So that's one thing that we've achieved. And even if 
it's not always working as well as it could do. We could always do more. If you kind of walk onto our unit on any given day, you will find children out of bed, children out for cuddles, children out in seating, children engaging in play, which is kind of the one of the biggest aims you want to achieve. So while on the ventilator. Yeah, yeah, while on the ventilators. So they're not just in bed being sick, they're actually being children whilst recovering from being sick. And so that's a huge change. I think lots from a patient and family point of view. So I think we're trying to like encourage positive experiences from being pursued. So no parent wants to ever have to be on intensive care with their child. But ultimately what we're trying to do is is make that experience as positive as it can be. So things like creating positive memories, really important and something we try and reinforce. So if it's birthdays or special events or anything like that, we really go to town. So we've had ponies come onto our unit for children's birthdays and like big parties, things like that. So we're engaging all the whole family into the experience, try and make some the best out of bad situations suppose we're also kind of allowing children to be children so even if somebody is sick we're kind of giving them every opportunity to try and play or at least engage in play whatever that level of ability is so I think that's another really important kind of aspect of the work we've done which is great I think from a staff point of view and kind of what it's done from a, a staffing perspective on the unit is I think all our kind of our nurses and our physios and our doctors, everyone started to kind of see the positive impact of, of why it's so important. And our, our medics are converted. They're literally kind of like asking on ward round now, can this child get out of bed? I mean, sometimes they're pushing us to do it and we're like, well, hang about, we're, we're the ones that invented the concept. <laughs> so actually it's, it's amazing how it's wow. turned around because they're asking about it. So that cultural change has really started to, started to kick in which is amazing, but we've still got lots more work to do. It needs to happen across the board more. And I think we, we need to keep pushing the boundaries and doing it even earlier. But we've made kind of, we've had some really good success stories that have kind of really boosted morale, I suppose, around the unit that have made everyone kind of go, wow, we're really achieving something amazing here, which is great. And um, I'm trying to think of some good ones. We had one, so an ECMO patient. So on VV ECMO, so really, really sick, 10-year-old boy. And he was kind of got poorly, had to go on to ECMO. And we were kind of really worried that he came, he walked into ITU and we wanted him to walk out. So, yes. so while he was on ECMO, we did loads of rehab to kind of maintain his strength, maintain his range of movement as much as possible. So with him, because we did all of that, so he did cycling while he was on ECMO, he did sitting on the edge of the bed, did a stand and then when he managed to wean off ECMO and and even when he was still tubed and on the ventilator he carried on doing standing and then when the tube came out he discharged off PIC within two days and then was walking to the ward essentially on the ward he only stayed in for three days on the ward and then literally did a stairs assessment and went home so amazing so yeah that just sort of shows that by maintaining his strength and maintaining his function he didn't actually have long in hospital whatsoever which is incredible considering how poorly he was I've got some feedback from a parent which I think is is kind of to, to me this is exactly what it's about really so this is a so a four-month-old which isn't really our target audience I suppose so 
the difference between adults and pediatrics is that our most of our population, so 70% of children in ITU will be under one. So if you think about how many children are actually going to be up and walking, not many, because most of the age range, they don't walk by then. Right. And it doesn't mean we should, yeah, it doesn't mean we shouldn't think about that under one category. So they shouldn't be missing their developmental milestones just because they're on intensive care. So this is a mother of a four-month-old giving us some feedback on our Move Forward programs. So this is how she felt about her child being part of Move Forward. And she essentially said, so Move Forward targets were so that we sort of set, um, we have a like a frog cycle, progressive program. So you start off being a tadpole when you're really sick and you become a frog by the end of it. So it's like a four-stage approach. So it's, we call them like targets. So the move forward targets were absolutely amazing when my four-month-old was on ECLS so ECMO it was lovely to see him transition through the through from a frog spawn to eventually being a frog it gave me hope every day when I could see he was achieving little steps which essentially made that meant that he would move up a level it gave me the small achievable steps to focus on thank you for giving me the hope that I needed so she essentially clinged on to the progress that she could see through moving up the stages, which meant that actually he was becoming less sick. And it made, I suppose, it gave her like a, a tangible something to focus on, which we hadn't really even considered that as being part of it because to us, it's like, yes, they're sick, they're not sick, they're less sick, they're, they're progressing. But obviously to a parent, she's seeing that the day he's now become a frog is like an amazing day and got really excited every time we changed the picture on his bed it meant that he he was getting better so it was just quite powerful to see that's what it was was doing for a parent so that was really amazing to see really and like, as I said not someone that not a particular age category we're completely targeting so normally over six months is when we'd really start to push development as he was I think he was four months old so again not someone that we'd normally jump on from a physio point of view but yeah, so that's kind of like some of our big sort of successes. But yeah, just the, I think the cultural change is, is the most exciting part of it. And the fact that we're, we're trying to kind of change how children in bed look. They should, be, they should be up, they should be awake, they should be playing, they should be allowed to be children, essentially. So that's what we're kind of trying to achieve. And hopefully we'll get the evidence to prove that it works. Because you're doing it. You can't research what you don't do. So you're Absolutely. doing it and therefore yeah. you can research it and change the ICU community. Absolutely. Yeah. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. 
And this is why I can't do pediatrics. I just, I cry all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do too. Um, <laughs> you're talking about bringing a pony into the unit and parents being able to hold their children. It's all too fresh for me. I was just in the hospital with my daughter this weekend um, after a surgery, but she was in the ICU this last uh, October. So this last fall, so a few months ago, and she was on the cusp of needing a ventilator and, and her brain is one of the only, the most functional part of her is her brain. And I did not want to damage that. And when she's sick, she's not herself. And I, I, I just, um, I'm hurting and imagining having her completely sedated and not being able to look into her eyes. And as a parent, when you're so worried about them and you just want to connect with them and her eyes are one of the most communicative parts of her. So if I couldn't see her eyes for weeks on a ventilator, it would, it would be extremely traumatic for me as a mother. And even as, even though she, she was just on high flow nasal cannula and needing lots of suctioning during that hospitalization in the ICU, I held her on my lap all the time because that was going to be the best thing for her lungs and for both of us to just sit there and, and cuddle. And the staff just said, oh my gosh, she is one of the most held kids that we've ever seen on this unit. And it, it actually broke me. Like I tried to imagine not holding her or not being able to hold her for, I was, she was there for a week. So for a week, and I just, because of my, all my research and all this podcast, I tried to imagine her on a ventilator and just the isolation that a kid should never have. When is a kid not held for a week or weeks straight? When are they not looking into their parents' eyes? And the survivors, the adult ICU survivors have talked about their feelings of isolation and loneliness under sedation. But how much more is that for kids who can't tell us? And so I'm just, I'm so touched by the humanity that your team practices what would you recommend for pediatric ICU teams that want to implement this kind of approach? So I think the biggest thing that we found that what, what you have to do is to get, it, it can't be a single team that drives it in terms of, I couldn't as, a, as a, a lowly physiotherapist push the whole thing just because of through my team. You need to get that whole unit approach. You need to get everyone on board, everyone kind of pro it, or at least converted to this, as much as you can do and get a bunch of people in a room and meet regularly to get it to work, which is kind of the how John Hopkins achieved there. So it's their approach, really. It's developing guidelines that are going to work for your unit. And so we've our program is, is an adaptation of the Pick You Up, which is this program and Karen Chung Liberate. So it's a bit of a, a combination because we felt that there were certain things that for our unit and maybe from a UK point of view, made more sense to do it in a different way so we slightly tweak things to make it work for our unit and then I suppose thinking about you don't need lots of money you don't need lots of resources to be able to do it so I think lots of people think you need launching a big rehab program you need to load loads of fancy equipment you don't you don't need lots of fancy equipment you need I suppose you need enthusiasm and you need uh, drive you need some pieces of equipment, so some basic seating. You might need a little bit, which we already had in the physio department kicking around. We just changed who we used it for. We just brought it up to intensive care instead. 
and you need things like bubbles, skittles, balls, iPads, stuff to play with. You need just basically really cheap play stuff because children just want to play. So I think that's what you you need to allow them to do. So you don't need all this fancy equipment. I mean, we've now kind of invested in, we've got a bed bike, which we do use, but only certain children can use that because it's it doesn't go small enough for our tiny little ones. So you don't need all the fancy stuff, but you do need um, people to drive it forward and you do need that ambition. Staffing, because I think that's another concern too. They're like, oh, we don't yeah. have the staff for it. Like as if there has to be a whole nother team to do this. Yeah. So we launched our program with no additional staff whatsoever. So our, the premise on ours is because it's not, although it was led by a physio, it's not driven by physio. So the idea is the bedside nurses screen the patients and choose what category they're going to be in. And then between the nurses or the physios, if they're there or the medics, or basically you decide, you pick which category or which activities that child is going to do that day and the parents also feed into that and that's depending on what level of sickness they are and then either the nurses might do that so if it's like sensory stuff or story time or painting then that they will do that there and then or if the physios come along and might do a sit on the edge at the, of the bed at the same time or we might the physios and nurses will work together so it's just kind of collaboration really and and timing it so it works but you don't need loads of additional people I mean we're kind of two three years in now I think the only thing would be lovely to have would be maybe a a physio assistant that can help even more with the rehab but we've done it without and it's achievable without it's the hardest thing is keeping it going you've got to keep that drive and don't take your finger off the gas ever and I think that's the main thing it's it's hard work but it's definitely worth doing it and when you see the the culture change and I think for me it was when when the medics decided that this is something that they liked and I think it's also helped in the the world of pediatrics recently there has been a shift because the big intensive care conferences and peds are starting to talk more and more and and people like Satna have made that happen because it's now a, a commonplace discussion within medics on intensive care to talk about rehab which is completely new it's in peds we hadn't had that adult practice we're kind of way ahead of the game in in that respect but but yeah that's the kind of main things that I would kind of go for you don't need lots of people but you just need people that are keen and people that are willing to work oh that and I think that applies across the board I think even in the adult world it's hard for us to imagine kids on a ventilator sitting up painting and the kids tolerate it (laughs) They do. And I think one of the kind of original barriers that everyone had when we started to talk about children um, being awake is the fact oh, all of them will suddenly pull their tube out. Well, <clears throat> yes, at times you have little babies that can thrash and if the tapes aren't secured enough, then might, they might accidentally pull their tube out. But that's something that doesn't happen very often. And that's something that whether they're just in bed or if they're getting them out of bed, it's, it's not going to change whether it happens or it doesn't happen. And I think a three-year-old sitting in bed with a tube in isn't going to just suddenly reach out and pull their tube for no reason. So they they were allowed to be awake and allowed to play. And if you say, don't pull your tube out, they're not going to pull their tube out. <laughs> so especially if they're awake enough and not sedated to actually understand what's going on. Because I think 
that's some of the issue we've seen with our peds patients is that if they're sedated and they're then delirious because of it that's when you get the thrashing the misbehavior because they're not really them as actually if they're awake and able to process normally then they can engage with play they're not frustrated they don't want to pull the tubes out because they're happy and they're you're giving them a story so they're happy to listen to that um and they're not terrified and traumatized absolutely not so i mean again there's there's from a sedation point of view and i think in pediatrics there's still there's more we need to achieve and we had a the sandwich trial which is a big research trial that happened in the uk which has really helped with that so that was across lots of centers throughout the uk and that was basically looking at trying to extubate children as early as possible, looking at the use of sedation and, and trying to reduce it to try and extubate. So that's really kind of helped lead the sedation reduction, I suppose, in the UK. And that's kind of helped our early rehab programs. They kind of go together. You need a child to be awake to be able to rehab them or at least awake to a certain extent. But yeah, I think that's something that is will continue to improve and continue to progress as we get more and more confident that it is okay for these children to be awake. Amazing. And are you seeing the same outcomes as the adult side as far as decreased time on the ventilator, decreased time in the ICU, decreased infections? Yeah. So I suppose we haven't got the data to be able to categorically say it's happening. I haven't, I can't, unfortunately, I haven't got the enough data to prove it, but I suppose anecdotally, yes. I think ECMO patient I was talking about, the 10 year old boy, he was kind of part and parcel of the fact that his time in hospital, considering he was on ECMO, was really reduced, considering if you think of if he hadn't moved and all the sedation that he would have had, but he would have normally have had like a, a two-month, a three-month stay, and actually he had a three-and-a-half-week stay. So huge difference in terms of length of stay. And I think we're starting to see more and more that actually our children are doing more. So it means when they get to the ward, they're readier to go home. And I think that's the difference. And as a, as a person that does respiratory physio as well as rehab, we're kind of not, not doing our respiratory stuff because obviously you still need to do that, but we're using rehab as part of chest treatment as well. So we're finding that we're not having to do as much chest physio because we're doing movement and getting, getting moving, which um, also massively, as you alluded to before, helps the lungs. So it's kind of, it's changing our practice a little bit for the better, but it's just meaning the kids wean quicker and get off the vents, which is, can only be a win. Oh, absolutely. And you're reminding me, I'm going to do an episode later on secretions, secretion mobilization, clearance, all the things with mobility. So that's an interesting point that you make that you don't do as much chest physio, is that what you call it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Because the kids are doing it naturally themselves. Yeah, because if you put someone that's, if you're lying someone flat in bed and expecting them to cough and clear the secretions, I mean, if you try coughing lying down, it's really hard work. (laughs) As actually, if you sit someone up (laughs) and allow them to be able to take a nice deep breath to have a good cough, then it's amazing how much better that will be. So you're actually just giving them a better position to cough in, which means they're going to get stronger, which in this at the same time, the core muscles are going to get stronger. So their breathing is going to get stronger, which means they're going to wean quicker. So it, it's, it's a win-win situation. It makes sense. Sit patients up. It helps. Yeah. Amazing. And I've been told in the pediatric world that there's a lot of withdrawal. Like we have sedation, especially the benzodiazepines, opioids, 
on so high and the kids develop such tolerance that it's really common for them to withdraw from those drugs. And so how has this approach impacted their withdrawal levels? Yeah, so I would still say that is still a problem. I wouldn't say that we've completely combated it yet. So one of the next things we're bringing in and we're kind of in the process of bringing into our unit is delirium screening. So in pediatrics, it's not routinely screened for or not not everywhere, definitely not many places that I thought. So we you you don't find it if you don't look for it. And I think sometimes it's labeled as other things as actually you need to find ways of managing it. So we're trying to kind of go down the pharmaceutical management of, or non-pharmaceutical management of. So trying to think about bedtime routines, the use of what sedation we're using to try and reduce the use of benzos as much as we can do, or at least <clears throat> when they're no longer needed, try and wean them as fast as we can do, but making, but keeping and watching for that signs of withdrawal. So it's, it's a balance because sometimes rehab's delayed because of withdrawal which obviously is frustrating because you want to try and get that rehab in as, as early as possible. But I think it's, it's looking at the holistic management of these kids. And if we, if we can pick up signs of delirium and things like that earlier, then we can put things in place to try and reduce it, combat it, which means that their kind of road to recovery doesn't have to be delayed. So it's, it's a work in progress. It's definitely not perfect. We still need to address sedation practice and that's kind of something as a whole unit we're, we're working on but it, it definitely is a problem within pediatrics because when they're really poorly they need a lot of sedation and I think it's just recognizing when to reduce that or starting less and to start with which is another another challenge within practice but it's it's starting to happen it's getting there and watch the space I suppose and in the studies, are, are long-term outcomes being studied as far as cognitive deficits, where they're at developmentally? Because it sounds like the few studies that we do have, that kids are not up to level or developmental level or at least baseline by six months, a year. So is that being studied in the upcoming studies as well? Yeah, so um, Karen Chung has done quite a lot of work into outcomes. And I think someone from John Hopkins, I want to say it's Dr. Herrup, I think, has done some outcome type stuff, which I think I randomly did a presentation a while ago to so many people and I've got some stats. But essentially it's showing that even on discharge from PIC, they're still kind of getting, in fact, here we go, I found it. So, so 82% of PICU survivors have a new functional disability coming out of ITU. So that's not something they went in with, but because of their ITU stay, 82% have a functional disability. So that's the functional side. But at six months post-discharge, 56% still have cognitive and psychological impairments from their stay, which is huge. They've also got an increased risk of fatigue and sleep disorders following being on their stay on PICU. And it's found that it had a reduced academic performance. So it has a long-lasting impact. And they can even after, so they may not have it initially post-discharge, but kind of three months following discharge from PICU, they start to develop things like PTSD um, and delusional memories and things like that from their ITU stay. So it's clearly showing that actually, although at the time we, they may not be able to show how traumatic this experience has been for them, children do show it just in different ways later. So it's really important that we combat it now, really. And that's so much in line with the adult side. 
we call it post-ICU yeah. dementia with our new diagnosis. So we're giving yeah. kids dementia. The PTSD is almost at least one study I showed probably over 80% of post-ICU PTSD is from the delusional memories. So that sounds yeah. like it's in line with kids. Yeah, absolutely. I, I asked Sapna, I mean, how do you, my daughter couldn't tell me, you know, what kind of hallucinations she had. So how do you know what they experienced? But I guess kids old enough can tell you and that yeah. have, you think about mm-hmm. the, their nightmares and how, you know, they come running to you yeah, in bed and how scary that is. But if they experience something even more vivid and maybe more morbid for weeks on end, absolutely. how do they heal from that? I know. Well, I remember I, I went in to see, I think he was eight, a little boy. And he kept telling me, he's like, can you tell the man in the corner to go away? There wasn't a man in the corner. And I was kind of like, there's no one in the corner. You're fine. You want, you're okay. And he was like, no, he's been there and he won't go away. So obviously he was just imagining there was someone there, which is terrifying. And then, then he kept saying there was spiders crawling all over the ceiling, which is, you know, horrible thing for him to like think was happening because obviously it wasn't happening at all but that just shows the kind of I don't know, delusional type delirious things that these children go through on PICU so it's kind of yeah making sure we try and put things in place to try and stop that happening or at least if it does happen trying to reduce the effects of it as much as possible. And if we have pediatric team members listening right now maybe for the first time on the podcast I would invite you to go back and listen to episode four. Adults are talking about what they experienced under delirium or under sedation. So I, I reached out to these adults and I, these ICU survivors, and I just asked, what did you experience under sedation? I didn't give them any prompts. I didn't say hallucinations, terrors, nothing. And yet that's all that they talked about. So episode mm-hmm. four and then episode 52, they talk about what they experienced and then what they've carried with them throughout the following months and years after the ICU. Cause it sounds like that applies to children. So if you work in pediatrics, listen to the adults and then try to see it within your own kids that you're caring for. Maybe the adults, since they're, they're so much in line, the adults can be the voices for kids that can't speak for themselves as far as what they're experiencing and the damage that it causes how much potential, how much growth are we hindering by our habits that we have in, the, in these ICUs? And you're giving us proof that it can change. And it was a physiotherapist that brought the change. And I think that is so powerful because I think sometimes, you know, with the hierarchy of ICUs, we feel like it has to come from the top and it didn't. And so often it doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, it was, I suppose it was, it was me with the, the idea and the ambition, but I, I, I must, must reinforce, it was definitely much a team approach that drove it through. So Absolutely. yes, I was kind of flying the flag, but I had many people along with me that massively were like completely essential to make it work too. So yeah, I think it's that team approach is what's needed. So yeah, just everybody communicate, talk to each other. Ultimately you can achieve the same goal. Well, after being in the hospital four times in the last five months with my own daughter, sorry, I get emotional. Pediatrics is so special and people go into pediatrics because they're some of the best humans on the earth. And I just know that as they listen to you and understand what's possible and what the reality is for kids, they're going to make that change 
And I am so inspired by your efforts and your humanity. Thank you for fighting for these kids opportunity to survive, but also thrive as a mother of a special needs child that may be on a ventilator someday with any kind of kid cold. I am so grateful for all the good work you and your team are doing. And I am excited to advocate for my own daughter and future children. So thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, thank you for letting me letting me talk. I'll happily talk till the cows come home on this topic. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, as you said, it's so important. <laughs> well, I may send listeners your way if they have more questions. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, absolutely. Always have, always have you discuss it. Thank you. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website, www.daytonicuconsulting.com.